Sonny uh, probably would not have been. Sonny was the, the, one of those younger guys you saw on the screen, and he probably would not have been on most people's prayer list. He, he wasn't sick. Um, he wasn't depressed. He wasn't starving or had some other physical need. And he wasn't awaiting some kind of test results back from a doctor. He, he wasn't facing surgery. Uh, he had uh, several good friends, in fact, even several strong Christian friends that, that he liked to be around. Um, but unfortunately, and unfortunately, most of them wouldn't put Sonny at the top of their prayer list. In fact, most of them probably wouldn't have Sonny on their prayer list at all because he hung out with all these people. And, and if we're honest, when we looked at Sonny and, and thought about his story, that most of us um, wouldn't have included him on our list. When, when we make a prayer list, when we make things that we're going to pray about, Sonny's name probably wouldn't have been on there. Because there's nothing on the outside looking at Sonny that it was pressing enough for us to pray for him. But his two friends, David and Jonathan, were the two other guys in that video. They started to see Sonny from a different perspective. And they began to pray for him, or for him with a different focus and this different perspective. And these two started to understand that, that Sonny had a need far beyond what we could see on the outside. That, that Sonny really had a grasp, uh, this, this massive need that could only be met through Christ. You see, it was, uh, it was oblivious to people on the outside, but Sonny had never been saved. And so even though he hung out with people from the youth group, he didn't hang out in the youth group, and he didn't go to youth group, and not that that made him saved, but he, Sonny had this desperate need for his eternal destiny to be changed. And so Jonathan and David together started praying from that perspective. They started praying what they could do uh, and how God would use them, not for the physical part of Sonny, but for the spiritual part of Sonny's life. And so they, they began to pray for camp. Um, and so, honestly, one of them had been praying and invited Sonny to camp a couple years ago, and every time he just had an excuse. And so, finally, one of the other friends, Jonathan, started joining uh, David in praying for Sonny. And, and so he began to pray, God, just if there's a way possible, let him go to camp with us. Just I, We know that you're going to do something great. Just let him go to camp with us. And so he called the youth minister, and the youth minister said, we're full. There, there's nothing we can do. There's no spots left open for summer camp this year. And so Sonny was, would be more than glad to go. I'll put him on the waiting list. Um, but right now I can't do anything about it. And so they kept praying and they kept praying. They didn't let that stop them. And so uh, just a couple of days after that, uh, Jonathan got a, a text back from the youth minister and said, Hey, one spot out of all camp has opened up. And if Sonny wants to go, it's his. And so they just talked about how Sonny went to camp just because it was cool and it was going to be fun to do. And he said that they could tell that God was doing something in Sonny's life in the very first days of camp. And he says that they remember um, this youth group, and you guys that have been to camp, you've kind of seen this, that at the end of the service, everybody's standing up, kind of like what we do here at the end of the service, and everybody's singing this song and, uh, and worshiping God. And he says that him and David weren't worshiping, they weren't singing, they were just simply grasping the, the chairs in front of them, and they were desperately praying that this be the moment that changed Sonny's eternity forever. And so then all of a sudden they felt this nudge beside him. And Sonny was trying to get out of the aisle because he had to get down front. He had to go talk to somebody down front because at that moment Sonny knew what they knew all along, that he desperately needed an eternal perspective and not just this earthly perspective. He desperately needed his eternity changed. And so these young men 
began to pray for Sonny's life, not physically, but spiritually. And it changed the way they viewed Sonny and changed the way that they prayed for Sonny. And really, I, I, showed, I was going to show you that video because it mirrors what Paul is teaching us about prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, which is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to see in this passage, Paul's main focus of his prayer is not the physical it's not what he sees necessarily around him, even though that's part of the prayer. His main focus of the prayer is what lies beyond this earth. And so we're going to see that in this prayer. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with us uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, we'll read verses 3 through 12. And, and all of this is somewhat contained uh, of Paul's prayer for this church in Thessalonica. But Thess 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 starts off and it says, We must always thank God for you, brothers. This is right. Since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith and all the persecutions and afflictions that you endure. It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you, are also, for which you also are suffering. Since it is righteous for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to reward with rest those who are afflicted along with us, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. Verse 8, taking vengeance with a flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from His glorious strength. In that day, when He comes to be glory, excuse me, when He comes to be glorified by His saints and be admired by all those who believed, because of our testimony among you was believed. Verse eleven. And in view of this, we always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of His calling. And will by his power fulfill every desire of goodness and the work of faith. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you for the time that we've sang together and the time to lift you up. And God, the time to sing about how our God is wonderful and our God is mighty. And God, how our God is strong beyond all measure. God, we are glorifying you through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning. God, how precious is that flow for us. God, that flow that washes us wider than sins. And so, God, we are glorifying you through your Son and through what your Son has done. And so, God, I pray, as Paul prays for this church, that you be glorified, that you be lifted up in everything that is done and said this morning, Father. God, I pray that our sole focus in gathering this morning is to do what Apostle Paul prayed for this church and prayed for us. God, that you be lifted up, that you be exalted, but God, also that we be filled with you this morning. And so, God, I pray that as we look at this prayer, it's not just a prayer that, that we see that he wrote thousands of years ago, but, God, this is what he is praying for us. This is what we should be praying for ourselves. This is what we should be praying for each other, and this is what we should be praying for our church. God, I pray this morning that we change our prayers from an earthly, physical perspective, God, to what is bigger and beyond anything that we can say, do, or even imagine, Father. God, let us pray. Like eternity depends on it this morning, Father. 
God, let us live and worship like eternity depends on it this morning, God. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that we are open to hear your voice in just a mighty, powerful way this morning. And God, I pray that the words of this text and the meditation of all of our hearts are pleasing to you. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A long time ago, there was a well-known pastor in a major city that realized that the scope of ministry of that city, the needs of that ministry or that city, was too great for him and even all the other pastors in that city to accomplish. And so uh, he began to kind of understand that that they could not him, regardless of how good he was, and all these other pastors, regardless of how good they were, that they alone could not reach this city for Christ. That there was just too much of a city and too few of them. And so he came up with this idea that he was going to start a school, kind of a, a training institute for young men. And he's going to call these men the gap men. All right? and, and what he said is that these men are going to fill the gap of the, fi- of the cities. They're going to fill in the gaps where the pastors are not reaching into this city. And so essentially, his goal was to train these men to be missionaries in their own hometown. That he was going to train them to, to be able to, to know the gospel, to, to share the gospel, and to go out and spread the gospel throughout their whole city. And, and the idea that, that they were going to change this city for Christ, and he was going to do it by these gap men. Because between this pastor and that pastor, there was this huge gap. And so these men were going to stand in, they were going to fill in that gap, and they were going to spread the gospel and spread revival in their city. And so he started this school, and there was just a handful of students, and kind of in his first class, and, and he spent time with them, he invested in these students, he spent uh, a great deal of energy investing in these gap men for his city. Uh, and the program worked well, and so he trained them, and then he sent them out. And it worked so well that he started a second set of classes and he was training this second set of men to get ready to send them out to do exactly what the first group had been doing to, to go out and stand in the gap, to share the gospel. And, I, and as they were doing this, it, exact, it was exactly as he had been praying for it. His church, along with other churches in the area, started to grow. And he wasn't just excited about his church growing. He was excited about all these churches that were around him growing because people were responding to the gospel. But unfortunately, it it didn't take very long to some of these other pastors in the area had some concerns. They, They were worried about this school and what was going on in their city. And so several of them got together and they went to meet with this very kind of famous predominant pastor. And they said, we need to talk to you about some of these concerns that we have. And he says, sure, I'll make time for you. And so he scheduled time and he sat down with them. And this group of men sat there and they all started kind of voicing their concerns and really their complaints about him opening this school in this city. One of them's concern was, I'm really afraid that, that my church is going to grow so fast that I can't keep up with it. I'm really afraid that my church is going to grow so fast that, that I'll have so much to do, I won't be able to do what I need to be doing on Sunday morning. So this first pastor just listened to that. When the second pastor, or another pastor, stood up in the group and he said, Listen, I, I think what you're doing is a great idea, but I, I'm, I'm kind of concerned that some of these gap men are going to think that they've got what it takes to be preacher boys, and so they're going to become preacher boys one day. And there's not but so many churches in this city. To be honest with you, there's not but so many pulpits that need somebody to stand in them on Sunday morning. And what I'm really concerned is that you're training these men so much, they're either going to go out and start their own churches and pull people away from us, or honestly... They're going to take our jobs. And so I'm really concerned that you're training replacements for us. I'm really concerned that that you're going to train somebody who's going to come in and take my job. And so this pastor just sat there and he listened as they voiced their complaints and they voiced their concerns. and, And they ended by asking the pastor really just to close this program down. 
closed this teaching, this training institute. And so the pastor that started the school just sat back and he listened to all their concerns and all their complaints. And, and when they were finished, he finally sat up in his seat and he simply said this, I thank God for the faith of each of these men who have come in and been part of my program. And the reason we need this school in this city is because these men have a greater love for God and a greater love for their fellow men than all you clergy sitting in this room right now. I'll be glad to shut the school down as soon as there's not a lost person left in this city that needs to hear the gospel. But until then, I'll keep teaching and I'll keep training because these men will need to stand in and fill the gaps that you refuse to do. See, that pastor passed away just a few years after he started that school, but the school continued and continues even to this day and has grown from a handful of students to now it has over 3,400 undergraduate and master's level students in it. Men and women who are dedicated to study God's word and take it not just to that city, but they are taking it to the remotest parts of the world, parts that you can only reach by airplane. In fact, that's one of their ministry training programs is, is ministry aviation. That all started... Because of a, a guy who understood what Paul is praying for here. That, that understood that, that, that this guy started this institute because a man was fully aware that Paul is praying for these men to stand in the gaps. And he's so thankful for people who are willing to stand in the gaps. And he's so thankful for these people who are willing to do what he's called them to do. And actually what he shows us in this first part of this prayer is that we need to be doing the exact same thing. That we need to be thankful when we see signs of grace in the lives of other people. Can I tell you, I've met with a lot of pastors. I meet with lots of groups and lots of different groups of pastors. And, and pastors, uh, we, we may smile on Sunday morning. We may tell you how great things are on Sunday morning. But you get a group of pastors together, and there's some that are just always negative about something. They're always concerned about this group over here doing something, that group over there doing something, and this group's doing that. And, and they're going to take people from my church, and this group's going to do this. And I, and I just sit there, and I'm listening, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe instead of complaining about them sharing the gospel, maybe you should go out and share the gospel too. Maybe instead of complaining that they're going to take people from your church, maybe you ought to be out inviting folks to your church. And so what Paul shows us in the first part of this letter, this second letter to the Thessalonians, is that we need to be thankful when we see signs of grace in other people's life. And Paul starts this letter like he does almost every other letter that he writes. He just starts with an introduction of here's who I am, Here's who I'm writing to. And then he gives them some kind of grace, some kind of blessing in there. And then he jumps right in in this one with this thanksgiving. In verse 3, he starts off the prayer like he does with many of the churches with this idea of thanksgiving. In verse 3, he says that we must always thank God for you, brothers. That's the first part of his prayer. I have been thanking God for you, I'm thanking God for you now, and I'm going to continue thanking God for you because this is good, this is what we should be doing. But I want you to notice, he doesn't thank them, he thanks God for them. Right? He's not thanking them for what they're doing or what's going on, he's thanking God for what God is doing in and through their lives. And he's thanking God for these signs of grace that he's heard about and he saw in their lives. And he continues in verse 3 and verse 4 because he begins to show us what the signs of grace are. Why is he thanking God for this group of people? Again, not thanking them, but thanking God for what he's doing in them. So he says in verse 3 that we must always thank God for you, brother. This is right, since your faith is flourishing. That's the first reason that he thanks God for them. He's thanking God that they have a growing faith. Now I can tell you as a teacher and We've got a couple other teachers here, a couple other teachers that are watching online. The, the greatest joy of teaching is what we call either those light bulb or those aha moments. 
When you are sitting there in front of a class or a group of students and, and you are trying to teach them something and maybe you're, it's a hard concept for them to get, maybe it's a difficult idea for them to understand, and, and you are just pushing through. Man, you, you've got to get this lesson and you've got to get them to understand this. And you're just met with all these blank stares. Right? I'm sure I'm not the only one, hopefully, but I'm sure that every teacher has been sitting in, in their classroom or teaching their classroom and they just have this look on their face. Like All the kids have this look on their face like, I just don't get it. nothing is clicking, and you can read their facial expression that nothing is clicking, that that they just haven't grasped this idea. And then all of a sudden, you just keep pushing on because you got to, and and you start connecting the dots, and all of a sudden, you'll see their expression change. All of a sudden, you'll see, like, from this blank expression, you'll see this, like, oh, I got it. Like, and that's what we call those light bulb moments, those aha moments when the kid's like, ah, I get it now. Like, I understand where it's going. All these pieces that you've been talking about and all these different ideas that are, they're all connecting together. And so finally the student starts to connect all these pieces and and they're no longer these blank stairs. In fact, they fit in these ideas together. And so for teachers, we get so excited about this because this is the moment that we have pressed on. This is the moment that we've been working for when these students start to take hold of this idea and not just take hold of this idea but they become so entrenched in this idea that they're ready to go on to the next because they want to see what's next after this that they really kind of fall into this and they want more of it and more of it and more of it and they take this idea and they run with it that's the beauty of teaching and everybody who's ever taught looks for those moments because when they happen man that's what makes your whole teaching career worth it and for Paul, as he wrote to this church, it was a church that he started and a church that he helped plant. And so then he had to do what he always does. He starts this church, he gets established, and then he walks away from it. He leaves somebody else in charge. Then he, he hears about them, and he hears they've really grasped this idea of faith. They're really holding on to it for himself. And he uses a pretty interesting adjective to describe their faith. And in fact, it's the only time this word is used in the whole New Testament. He says that they have a flourishing faith. A different translation would say that they have a, a growing abundantly faith or a greatly enlarged faith. See, it's the word that used to describe a plant, more specifically a flower. He says that, that when I left you, you were this small tender little flower that could be blown over by the wind. You, you were just a plant. You weren't even a flower at that stage when I left you. He says, but now that I've heard back about you, now that I've had, maybe had a second chance to visit you, you're not just this small little tender plant. You have blossomed into the flower that I prayed you would be. You have a full bloom out on you, and you have become what I was hoping you would become. You are like a flower that's blossomed, and now you're showing everybody your beauty. This is what Paul had been praying for. And so now notice what he's doing. He's thanking God that these young Christians, they didn't stop being this tender little plant. They continued growing even after he had gone. They continued growing their faith even after he left. And so the challenge for you and me sitting here is not to look at this prayer and say, well, that's good for them. The challenge for you and me as we consider this prayer is when was the last time that we thanked God for this same thing? When was the last time that we saw God working in someone's life and we thanked God for that? How often do we thank God when we see someone growing in their faith? I think of all the prayers that we offer for people's salvation. We're going to get to that in just a moment. I think of all the times that we pray for someone's salvation, and then they get saved, and it's like they fall off of our radar. 
Like, we don't pray for them anymore. And, and, and like, hey, yeah, we're excited you got saved. We're thanking God for that. And then they continue growing in faith. But we don't ever thank God for those next 10, 15, 20 years of them growing in their faith. We ought to be thanking God that he's doing something in the lives of these young believers and old believers. We ought to be thanking God that on Wednesday night, there's 20, almost 30 kids that come together in this room. And then they go down the hall because they memorize verses of Scripture. Do you hear that? We ought to thank God. Parents, you ought to be thanking God that your kids want to memorize Scripture. Parents of teenagers, look right here. We got a whole row of young men right here. We got a whole row of young. We ought to be thankful that our kids want to come to church, that they want to hear the gospel of Christ. We ought to thank God for that because it's not as common as we think that it is. And when we need to thank God, we need to thank Him that He is showing His grace in and through these people. We need to thank God that we as a church and we individuals are we're not the same place we were two years ago or four years ago. This may shock you, but I've been here for four years. I'm looking out of the faces of some of you that I baptized, and I thank God that I got to baptize you three and four years ago, but I'm thanking God that you're not in the same place you were when I baptized you. We ought to thank God that we are growing and continuing to grow and that we want our faith to grow more. Paul's excited that they have this flourishing faith, but he's also excited the second part that he's thankful for, that they have an increase in love. We go back to verse 3 and he says that we must always thank God for you brothers. This is right since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Paul looks at this church and he doesn't just see a growing faith. What he sees is a growing community. He, he sees a group that is growing closer and tighter together than they've been before. That over the past years they've grown closer. That they love not just Christ more and their faith is flourishing, but they love each other more than they used to. He sees this great sense of community that once wasn't there or wasn't as strong. And now Paul sees it and he's thanking God that this continues. And he's thanking God that this is, is keep going. And so we understand the reason that he's thanking God for this, because we read this passage and we're like, well, shouldn't he be thanking them for this? Like, shouldn't he be thanking them that they came to Bible study? Shouldn't he be thanking them that they chose to live this lifestyle? Shouldn't he thank them that they agreed to get along? And the truth is no. Because the only way that these people are able to get along, the only way that we as a church are able to get along is through the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, let's be honest, the only way that all of us are able to live together and work together and be part of this body is because we are all in the same place together. We are all desperate for the grace of Jesus Christ. And when a church becomes united, it's only because Christ is the center of that church and everything else is peripheral. Let's be honest, we live in a very divisive time in a very divisive world right now. You don't have to take my word for it, pick up a newspaper, pick up anything. Shoot, look on Facebook. You'll find out really quick. We live in this time when our nation is divided over everything, over race. We're divided over which lives matter. We're divided over which political party you belong to or you vote for. We're divided over how much money you make or, or what side of town you live on. There's all these divisions among us. And let's be honest, this world loves it. It loves that it can take one little thing and pull you apart and one little thing and pull this group apart. And it loves this whole idea of division. And so this idea that, that there is unity within the church only comes because there's a love for each other that can only be there because there's a love for Christ. You see, we can, we can have this community because the love for one another beyond our differences is because we serve and love a God that doesn't see our differences. Did you hear that? The only way that we have unity within the church is because we love each other despite our differences. And we're not all the same. We shouldn't be. God didn't make you all the same. 
But we love and serve a God that doesn't see those differences. And so we, like Paul, need to thank God for this love for each other, that it increases, that we can stand together in unity, even if we don't see eye to eye, even if we don't agree on everything. There is one common thing that unites all of us together, and it is our love for Christ. And Paul is thanking God that that love for Christ overshadows everything else in these people's lives. And this final sign of grace that Paul thanks God for in this church is that they are persevering under very difficult trials. It's like many of these new churches in this area, the, a, the people around them, they weren't very excited about a church popping up. They, they faced great persecution, and they were able to stand firm against it. And so in, in verse 4, they stood actually so firm against it that in verse 4, he actually says that, that they brag about it. And so he says, Therefore, we, not the Thessalonians, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith, and the persecution and afflictions that you endure. You see, Paul is not thanking God for the persecutions. He's not thanking God for the trials. What he's thanking God for is that these people have been able to withstand the trial, that that God has given them the strength, the faith, and the endurance to face this difficulty. He's thanking God that these people's faith is strong enough and that they're willing to suffer for what they believe in. They're willing to suffer for the kingdom of God. And again, notice he's not thanking them. He's thanking God. Why is he thanking God? Because the only way that they can withstand this type of pressure, the only way that they can withstand this persecution is through the grace of God. It is God who strengthens them. It is God who gave them faith. It is God who gave them endurance to see this through. And so he's thanking God that they've been able to stand in that strength. He's thanking God that God gave them the strength so that they have this miserable experience. And yet what do they do? They come out with a story to tell on the end. And he says, listen, I'm thanking God that you stood so strong and he gave you the strength to stand strong enough so that, guess what, I can go to this other church who thinks they're going through persecution and I can tell them what you went through. And if God got you through that, then guess what, he'll get you through this. You see, for some of us, we need to thank God for the perseverance and endurance of our fellow man. I don't know, we we go through these prayer lists all the time. We go through these prayer lists of things that we need to pray for and and, and surgeries that are happening and sicknesses that are happening. And what we need to do is, is not only pray for those things, those things are good to pray for, but we need to thank God for the endurance that He provides for that person that's in the midst of that trial because at the end of it, there's going to be a story that's told. And that story is going to be able to be told because it's going to encourage someone else. It's going to give uh, strength and faith to someone else. For God, who, who is able to produce this endurance, the God who's able to give them peace that passes all understanding so that when the storms in our life come around, we get to look at the storms that somebody else has already went through and says, if God got them through that, then He can get me through this. Let me tell you, I have prayed for a lot of people. And I pray that they get through this, and I pray that they get through that, and I pray that God sees them through that. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know that I actually prayed and thanks God, not just for the healing, but for the endurance to wait for it. For the endurance to the story and the trial that comes in their life, because they're going to have a story that other people can brag about, and we can share how good our God is. As Paul is praying to be thankful for these folks. He's thanking them that they have, not thanking them, he's thanking God that they have a growing faith. He's thanking God that they have a, a, a love that's increasing, their, their sense of community is increasing, and he's thanking God that they've had the endurance and the strength to persevere all of this. Those are reasons that we need to thank God. 
Those are reasons that we need to look across these seats and see other people. And we need to look at them and say, I am so thankful that God is doing something in your life. And it may be very different than what God is doing in my life. It may look very strange to me, but I'm so thankful that God is in your life and God is working in your lives. And so let me ask us as a church, how often do we thank God for what He's doing in the lives of the people that are around us? How often do we thank God for what He's doing, not just in this church, but every church that's downtown Cleveland? How often do we thank God for what He's doing in and through the lives of every believer in this world? And my guess is probably not as often as we should. Last year, Reader's Digest published an article of every must-have toy for every year going all the way back to 1965. And they got their information from, I didn't even know this place existed, the Toy Hall of Fame. Now, I don't know about your next vacation, but I know I'm changing my plans. I want to go to the Toy Hall of Fame. All right, forget Disney, this sounds like the place to go for me. And so all the way back in 1965, the must-have toy, the toy that was on the top of everybody's list, was the, ex- 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 uh, the Etch-A-Sketch. You know the little red one where you turn the knob and it went this way and that way and this way? Yeah, 1965, that was on the top of everybody's list. Everybody, every kid wanted one of those. It was like your own little movie theater that you could create a movie screen. You could create anything you wanted, and then you just erased it by shaking it. It was the coolest thing, all right? I had one, but not in 1965. I'm just going to tell you that, all right? So every kid, this is what they wanted. And in the 1970s, there were toys uh, like the original Big Wheels, the, the Baby Alive, and uh, this one I still don't understand, the Pet Rock, all right? I don't know why in the world that was on the top of everybody's list in 1976, I believe, or 78, somewhere in there. But that was what every kid wanted. And then the 1980s added some, some things like the Rubik's Cubes, Cabbage Patch Kids, and get this one, Ready? The Nintendo Game Boy. Some of you guys, oh yeah, now we're getting closer to home, yeah. And then the 90s, get this, added two that, that I still can't forget, even if I wanted to. I closed my eyes and I still have nightmares about these. The Tickle Me Elbows and the Furbies. You're welcome. Now the rest of you can share in my nightmare that I've been going through for the past couple of days. And then the 2000s, the toys were mainly electronics. There was the Nintendo DS, and get this one, you ready? We thought this was the coolest thing, this was the best thing ever. The iPod Touch. Not the iPad. The iPod Touch. Now, see, this whole group here and these ladies right here, they have no idea what that is. All right? And I'm sad for you. Okay? I really am. (laughs) Some of you are just too young to remember any of those things I mentioned. I'm excited that some of those things that I looked on those lists, my kids have actually asked for those things. There was a light bright, and I was like, we actually got one of those for our kids a couple years ago. So there's hope. There's hope for this generation. But in, in, in looking over this list, this was the list that, that, as I mentioned, this was the wish of every kid. This was what they wanted more than anything else. This, this, whatever toy it was for that year, this is what most kids wanted. It was the most sought-after toy for that year. And so I was a kid once, and I remember, like, maybe it wasn't the things on that list, but I remember, and all of us probably can't, there was one gift or one toy that, as a kid, you wanted more than anything else. All right, And you were willing... To plead and beg. And you were even willing like, to, to make sacrifice of like, if, Mom, if you will get this for me for Christmas or, or if for my birthday, I will do this, whatever. Clean the yard, clean the horse stables. Like, I'll clean this house top to bottom every day for the rest of my life if you'll just get me this. 
right? Most of us had that toy or that, that, that whatever it was we wanted. There was something that we were willing to beg and plead for, and it didn't matter because that in that moment was the most important thing in all our lives, and it meant more to us than anything else that we ever had. And if we just could have this one thing, then we'd be satisfied forever, right? Now, fast forward a couple months after you got that thing. Let's be honest, most of us played with it for a month, two months, three months maybe, and then we forgot all about it. And the next birthday or the next Christmas we started to roll around and, and there was something else on the top of our list. There was something else that we started to beg for and started to plead for. And, and we started this all over again that we had to have this new thing more than anything else in the world. And that was just fast forward a year. And let me fast forward to now. Let's be honest, most of us couldn't even fit on a big wheel if we wanted to. Most of us traded in our iPod touches and our, our, our Nintendo Game Boys a long time ago. We either threw them away or we got something a little more modern and up to date. You see, the interesting thing is that when kids fill out a Christmas list or a birthday wish or a wish list or whatever it is, they fill it up with all this stuff that is so important to them at that moment. And yet within time, it's not going to be important to them at all. And I'm so interested because... We as adults, if we're truly honest, we fill up our prayer list with all these things that are so important to us at this moment that if we fast forward 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years down the road, they wouldn't make a difference to us whatsoever. But in that moment, they felt like they were everything. They felt like they were the most important thing. And so Paul kind of really shifts gears in this passage, he really changes what he's talking about. Paul spends the first part of his prayer thanking God for what he's doing in and through the lives of these Thessalonians. And then he really changes uh, to something different. He really changes gears when we reach verse 6. And, and there were a lot that will say that if you read this passage, verse 6 is, is uh, where Paul goes off and he chases this rabbit. All right? Now this is why I like Paul, because he can do that, but he's got a point when he does it. All right? Because if you've been in one of my classes... I do this all the time. But when Paul gets to verse 6, man, he really changes gears. And you really have to see that, that he goes way out here because he's thanking God for all these things he's doing in his life. And then he goes out here and he starts talking about vengeance. And he talks about retribution. And he starts talking about hell and destruction. And he does all that in verses 6 through 10. You're like, what in the world, Paul? What Did you, did you suddenly forget what you were doing? Like, I'm with you, Paul. I mean, sometimes I'm praying and I forget that I'm praying. I just start talking about random stuff. Is that what was going on? But i got to be honest with you, Paul is doing this for a reason. There's a connection. If we look at the bigger context of what Paul is doing, there's a connection between this section and the sections right before this and right after this. You see, if you remember, what Paul is doing is he's starting to teach us that we need to pray beyond just this world. We need to pray beyond just what we see and what we feel right now. We need to pray with this eternal perspective rather than filling our list with all these temporary things. See, in the section, Paul was talking about retribution and vindication. And if you remember that these Thessalonians were facing uh, this great persecution, and if you've ever been in that situation where, where your world is just crushing around you, when you've ever been in that situation where, where even though you're trying your best to do everything good and right, everything else is not working for you. Everything else is falling apart. And most of us will never face the kind of persecution these people did. But when you're in those moments, you start to question a little bit. And one of the things people start to question when life gets tough is, is God even hearing my prayers? 
Maybe he does, maybe not. So they were starting to wonder, where's the justice in this situation? It seems so unfair that we are trying to do what is right. It seems so unfair that we are trying to serve God, that we're trying to worship God, and yet we're being punished. And what makes it worse is the people who are punishing us for doing what is right, man, they're not doing anything that's right. They're not living for God at all. In fact, they would just assume, you know, go live like God never existed. God, this doesn't feel right. Why are we punished for doing good, but we're punished by people who could not care less about you? God, where is your justice? Where is your vindication in this? And so it starts to, they start to question this because it doesn't make sense to them. And so in verse 6, verse six and verse 7, Paul says, It is righteous for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. In verse 7, And to reward with rest... You who are afflicted along with us. You see, Paul reassures them that they they are justified in wanting justice. There is something within us that calls out for justice. And what it is, honestly, is that we are made in the image of God, and we're made in the image of this just God. And so when something is unjust, we should feel it on the inside. And so they are justified in wanting this justification. They are justified in wanting their persecution to end. And he says, listen, what you need to know is that's going to happen. That justice will be served. That it may not happen in this time. And it may not happen when we want it to. But he continues on in verse 7. He says, this is going to take place. This justice that you're wanting, it's going to be served. Get this, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. He says, listen, he's talking about this day of judgment. He says, listen, there's going to be punishment. There's going to be justice for all this injustice. But it may not come in this life. And so look around you and realize that the people who are getting by with murder now, they're not really getting by with it. Their time is coming. That even though they have everything they want and and they're living like nothing matters, and you are living like everything matters and have nothing, God sees all of that. And there's coming a day, not necessarily now, not just in the 10 years, but there's coming a time in the future that all of this is going to be set right. That there's this time in the future that things are going to be switched back to like they should be. And he says in verse 8 and verse 9, this is to those who know God, or excuse me, those who don't know God, and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9, they will, get this, pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence And from his glorious strength, Paul says, listen, I know you want justice. And I know that you're wanting vengeance to happen. But you need to know it's going to. And it's going to happen from God's timing and God's perspective. It's not going to happen when you want it. And it's going to come from God. And let's be honest, vengeance from God is far worse than vengeance from you. Because his vengeance is eternal. His judgment is eternal. And so listen, what you need to do is leave vengeance for him. Because his retribution is far different than yours. You're like, Michael, I don't see, what in the world does this have to do with prayer? And why in the midst of praying does Paul kind of take this rabbit trail? And what he's trying to get them to understand is that there is eternity beyond this world, beyond what we see and know right now. That everything we see and know, all the injustice, all the struggles that we are facing, guess what? They're all temporary for us. That there's a world and a reality far different than this. There's There's a different reality far beyond what we see and what we know right now. And so when we pray, don't just focus on what's happening to you right now and in this physical earth. In fact, don't get me wrong, we need to pray for those things. When someone is sick, we need to pray for healing for that person. But we ought to be more concerned about that person's soul than that person's body. 
The body is temporary, and one day our souls are going to leave this body, whether it's in 10 years or 3 years or 2 years or 20 years. One day our souls are going to leave this body, and they're going to one of two destinations. Paul is very clear in there. They're either going to pay the vengeance of God, meaning they're going to go to this place of eternal destruction. That's Paul's words for hell. They're either going to hell or they're going to spend eternity with God. So those that don't know God, those that don't obey the gospel, eternal destruction is where they're going to be. For eternity, they're going to be separated from God. For eternity, they're going to face His wrath. For eternity, they're going to face His retribution for all the time that He could have done, or that they could have done things, and they could have turned their back to Him. There is no middle ground. There is no second chance that these souls are headed for destruction. And we need to be praying for people that don't know God, and we need to be praying for people who don't obey the gospel. And honestly, we need to pray for them like eternity depends on it. Because guess what? Paul is clear. It does. i got to tell you, and I'm not a hell, fire, and brimstone preacher by any means, but Paul is clear there is an eternal destruction. That is the end result. That is where souls go that do not know God and do not obey the gospel. And so listen, we may spend a lot of time praying for the physical and temporary. We may spend a lot of time praying for people to get sit, to get better and to get healed and all those things. We may pray for all these physical things, and I'm not saying those are bad. But hear what Paul is saying. If all we're doing is praying that someone's physical body gets better, and yet we never pray for their soul, If all we're doing is praying that their physical body recovers from a surgery, if all we're doing is praying they they physically get over this illness or this sickness, and yet we never know where their soul is going, then really all we're doing is praying, God, make them a little more comfortable on their way to hell. That's all we're praying for people. And so I want to share with you this morning what Paul is, this connection that Paul is saying, is that, yeah, we can pray for the temporary, we can pray for things that are on this earth, but really what we need to be doing is focused on this eternal perspective, this idea that there is an eternity out there that's waiting for us, and that, they are, that we need to be praying and understanding that these are folks that are dying without a relationship with Christ, and that needs to be where our focus is. The great Charles Spurgeon once said that if hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertion, and let no one go there unwarned, and unprayed for. You see, Paul is not chasing a rabbit here. He is boldly proclaiming that we need to start praying like eternity depends on it because the reality is that it does. We need to start praying like eternity is at stake because there are people around us, there are people that we love, there are people we care for, there are friends that we meet every single day, and their soul will spend eternity somewhere. And so Paul is really pressing us, where are you praying they, spend, they send that their soul goes for all of eternity? Yeah, it's nice to pray for people that have a good day. It's nice for pray, to pray for people that they get healed from this sickness or that sickness. But if all we're praying is the physical outside, and we're never seeking their soul on the inside, then we're just praying they're a little more comfortable on their way to hell. There is an eternity that we need to be praying towards and seeing in this perspective. And then there's final two verses of Paul's prayer. He shows us what's most important to him. You see, Paul has prayed for, he's thanked God for these folks, and then he's shared this kind of eternal perspective with them. And then he gets to the meat of his prayer in verse 11 and 12. And he wants nothing more for these people than for God to be glorified. And he mainly does that in verse 12, but in verse 11 he tells us how he's praying that this comes about. And so in verse 11 he says, We always pray for you that our God will consider you worthy of the calling and will by his power... Or you know, by his power fulfill every desire for goodness 
and the works of faith. This verse could really be divided in two parts. We're going to take it in two parts. The first part is that God is glorified and, and is, that glory is shown for Christ. Right. So he's praying that we, in verse 11, will be considered worthy of the calling. That's the first part of the verse. And what's he talking about? He, he's praying that we have this title, that God has called us. He's praying that we will live worthy of it. Right. If you are a Christian, he's not praying that you get a title, because if you're a Christian, you already have the title. As Christians, we are sons, and we are daughters of the Most High King. We are sons, and we are daughters of God Himself. He has adopted us as His children. And so that's not what Paul's praying for. What he's praying for is that we live to that title, that we act like and we behave like that is who we are. He, he's saying that we want, he's praying that we will act like the children of the one true king we are because that's who we are. And what he's actually praying for is that when we do this, that we will show others around us who we are and who we belong to. You see, that's the first part of verse 11. And he's praying that to match the first part of verse 12. He's praying that we will be considered worthy of the calling, that we'll live a life worthy of the title that he gives us in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you. Paul's prayer is that we live a life that glorifies Christ, that our actions will lift him up. He's, he's, he's praying that we live this life that exalts Christ. Honestly, what he's praying for is this is worship right here. And this is worship that's not limited to Sunday morning on an hour and a half stage up here. This has nothing to do with what we consider worship. This is a lifestyle. And Paul is saying, I want you to live a life. I'm praying that you live a life that exemplifies, that, that glorifies Christ in everything, in every aspect of your life, that it brings glory and honor to Christ. Now let me make another connection for you. Because Jesus also says in John chapter 12, verse 32, he says, as for me, if I am lifted up from this earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, in the full context, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross, but that's what it took to exalt him. And so this idea of him being lifted up and exalted is kind of connection. And to put it another way, if he's lifted up, he will draw people to him. And so understand that what Paul is praying for is that we live a life in Christ so that other people, that we lift Christ up so much that other people around us look at him and see what is being lifted up in our life, and they say, I want that in my life. You see the eternal perspective coming back into the picture? Paul is praying that we live a life so that Christ is lifted up, so that other people who are on their way to hell suddenly see this beacon of light and they start coming to Christ. That's what Paul is praying. So that Christ is glorified by us, through us. He is lifted up and draws other people to Him in the life that we live. That's the first part of Paul's major prayer for these folks. That they will live worthy of this calling so that they will glorify Christ and so that others will be drawn to Him. This last section is that Christ will be glorified, that He'll be lifted up, but also... The second part of his prayer, Paul reverses the direction. The second part is that God will be glorified really for us, in us. Again, in the second part of verse 11, Paul prays that God will, by his power, fulfill every desire for goodness and work of faith. Right? Did you get that? Notice he, he doesn't pray for every desire. He doesn't pray that you're going to get everything you want. He's very descriptive here. This is not a name it and claim it, get everything you want when you ask for it kind of passage. That's not what he's saying. He's very specific that every desire for goodness and the work of faith. What he's praying, he's praying that God will give us all these things of goodness, all the desires of goodness, verse 12, so that the name of Christ, the name of our Lord Jesus, will be glorified by you. And here it is, here's the connection. 
and you by him. You see, Paul is praying this two-way street that we will lift Christ up, but also that Christ will lift us up. And that Christ will fulfill every desire, that we will be filled up with him so that every desire we have is met by him. That we are so filled with him that we are lifted up ourselves. You see, we can't do that on our own. If we could lift ourselves up, we would have done it. We wouldn't need the cross to do that. But this is the grace of God, that God will lift us up, that he, through his grace and through Christ, will lift us up and he will fulfill the desires of our heart, the goodness and the works of our faith. So we are lifting Christ up, but Christ is filling us up on the inside so that every desire we have is a desire for goodness, so that every desire we have is to be with him, so that every desire we have is for his glory and for our honor. You see, we need grace for this. We need to understand that this is the eternal perspective because this is what Paul is praying for this. That our greatest desires are met by Christ. And when our greatest desires are met by Christ, then we will glorify Him even more. You see, when we glorify Him even more, when we worship Christ even more, then we have a greater desire to do it even more. Our greatest desire is to glorify and worship Christ. And then Christ. To his greatest desire is to fulfill that desire in us. You see, our greatest desire is his glory. And his greatest desire is our delight in his glory. What we find is the more that we lift up Christ, the more that we want to lift up Christ. The more that we want to lift up Christ, the more he's going to fill us up. And the more he fills us up, the more we want to lift him up. The more he lifts us up, the more we want to lift him up. And so you see this cycle. What he's doing is he's preparing us. This is our eternity. This is what we're going to do for all of eternity. We are going to be satisfied like we've never been satisfied by before in worshiping our God who saved us and our Christ who died for us. This is the subject of his prayer, that we be glorified in him, through him, and that he be glorified in and through us so that every desire we have is to lift him up even more so that when we lift him up, he can fill us up even more. And this is, goes on for all of eternity. You want to know what heaven's like? It is beyond the best worship service that you could ever imagine. It is when your greatest desire is to lift Him up and to glorify Him and to sing with all the angels that have ever been created. It is when your desires are for Him more than anything else in this world. And when He meets those desires, you just want more. And you just want more. And you just want more. That's what Paul is praying for this church. Why? Because that's the eternity that waits all of us who know the gospel of Jesus Christ to make him known, to make much of him so that his delight is when we delight in his glory. So I'll end with this simple question. When was the last time that the most important you prayed for was your desire to worship God? When was the last time that the most important part of your prayer was that you would live up to the title of being a child of God? When was the last time that the most important part of your prayer was that He was glorified in you and that you were glorified in Him? When was the last time that was the subject of your prayers? Let me throw it a little different for you. When was the last time that was your subject of your prayer for somebody else? God, this is a friend. This is my family. This is my co-worker, and I want nothing more in my life than for them to glorify in you. Because I know where their soul is headed if they don't. See, what Paul is praying, and what we need to ask ourselves, is when we pray, do we pray like eternity really depends on it? And do we live 
like eternity really depends on it? Or do we just put a list of all these temporary things and just live like life doesn't really matter? Let's pray together.